Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive programme of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Supreme Court grants luxury homeowners victory over Tate Modern viewing platform. Housing in every London borough declared unaffordable for local average earners. First time rough sleeping up by a third in central London. And the long awaited pedestrianisation of Bank Junction finally moves forward. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Charles Begley. Charles is Chief Executive of the London Property Alliance. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Merlin. Good to be here. Residents of Neo Bankside have won their long-running legal battle over Tate Modern viewing platform visitors peering into their flats. The Supreme Court verdict, which overruled earlier judgments against the residents, was reported by Ollie Wainwright in The Guardian this week, who argued this landmark case could signal a shift in how urban public life operates. The original nuisance action was launched six years ago by residents in the RSHP-designed glass-fronted block, who claimed their human rights were being breached due to, quote, near-constant surveillance from visitors to Tate's observation gallery on the south bank of the Thames in central London. However, at an initial High Court hearing in 2019, an injunction to close the viewing gallery, just 34 metres away from the homes, was refused. That decision was reaffirmed a year later by three Court of Appeal judges who together refused to overturn the High Court ruling. Now, five Supreme Court judges have narrowly ruled 3-2 in favour of the owners of the luxury Riverside Flats, which are worth an estimated £2 million each, and agreed that the viewing platform did give rise to liability to the residents under common law nuisance. Supreme Court Judge Lord Leggett, who determined the homeowners faced constant visual intrusion, 
speculated that the previous court rulings were likely based on a quote, reluctance to decide that the property rights of a few wealthy property owners should prevent the general public from enjoying an unrestricted view of London and a major national museum from providing public access to such a view. The case will now be passed back to the High Court to determine an appropriate remedy, which is likely to either be an injunction against using part of the platform or damages paid to the five owners. Okay, so Charles, what's this all about? The viewing gallery is part of a publicly funded extension to Tate Modern that cost about £260 million to construct. Um, Has London now lost one of its most expensive and spectacular cultural amenities? This is a fascinating case and um, hands up, guilty as charged. I have stood on that viewing platform like many of your listeners uh, and probably yourself, Mervyn, and had a sneaky peek over at those wonderful flats uh, and it's you know it, it's captured the public imagination really, simply because it's been I think it's been blown up out of proportion it's almost become like a class war fight wealthy individuals versus the great public and the most, one of the most popular art galleries in the world um, but honestly I, I do not see a significant change in uh, the approach to future development uh, I, I think it's it, I can't see it quite opening the floodgates to hundreds more cases. I, I, I think it's just captured that zeitgeist of those who have and those who want to celebrate our, our city. It was a, a gallery that a lot of money was spent building. You had 10 years of austerity. Uh, during that time, a lot of major public projects were cancelled, including rebuilding all our schools. We needed to do that. But a lot of cash was found to, to build this switch house extension to Tate Modern, right in the centre of London, at a time when uh, residential property, certainly in the South Bank area, was sort of like rising up. Um, so these sort of things, yeah, at the time might have seen as like going hand in hand, you know, that the, the city becomes a more, a more wealthy, successful place. But then also there are free public amenities that everybody can enjoy, whether you're a Londoner, a visitor to London or you know, from anywhere in the world or the country. Um, yeah, this has disrupted that assumed narrative, this idea that everybody benefits from it, because you know, potentially that that viewing platform, or at least a big chunk of it, looking to beautiful South London, could be um, could be shot. I don't think either parties come out particularly good from this, because the design frameworks of you know the, the extension and the new homes were you know part of the planning process way before both those structures were built. Correct me if I'm wrong, Merlin, but the homes came first slightly, but the, the plans for the extension would have been well advanced. I think the difference here is when, let's say you have, let's say residential development, which cheek by jowl to commercial development, but it comes after the commercial, let's say a club or a, a pub or a restaurant is already there and it's been well established for many years. Um, I think the, the interesting thing about this case is that could we now risk, and I think this is why there's been such a, a reaction from the, the legal sector, is there now a risk that actually people who come after the event, who you know who have landed you know, in, in a home next to a commercial property or, or cultural property, will now try and get that shut down or part of it you know, limited. And I think that's, that's the uh, issue. Living in a city involves all kinds of compromises. Like if you think of London's mostly like Victorian houses, a lot of those are divided up into flats, even in the most wealthy parts like Kensington and Chelsea. That means people can hear each other moving about. Um, People have to share garden spaces, share hallway spaces. Living in a city always has this kind of compromise. And there's a feeling that with a case like this, a story like this, um, is it to do with people being able to sort of 
get a compromise into their head and learn to live with it? Or is it to do with people worried about the property value of their home? That this like big two million pound investment is somehow not really worth that much money. And it's certainly not worth that much money if come 9.30 every morning, there's school kids pointing and laughing at you uh, having your breakfast. So what's interesting, the Supreme Court judge is speculating that the previous decisions showed a reluctance to enforce the property rights of a wealthy few. Is it normal for wealthy property stakeholders to typically have less or more say of what happens in London? I think it's hard to look at everything through the prism of what's happened at Tate Modern. I think the, the, the judge uh, said it was a very particular and exceptional situation. Um, so but the, there is, I, I think if you live in the heart of a vibrant and dynamic city like London, you're in the heart of a commercial area, I think you have to accept that your rights to the same level of peace and serenity of someone who lives, let's say, in a little village uh, are different. And I think it's, you know, highly unfair when, you know, if people who are privileged to live in, 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 in the city um, can stop the very dynamism which, you know, which makes the city so attractive in the first place. So, but there's a balance, and, and you're right, a compromise. But I don't think we should see it through the prism of this case. In particular, obviously, your opinion on this matters a lot. You know, with the London Property Alliance, that is like the voice of property in central London, certainly Westminster and um, City, for example. Um, so are you hearing that from, from the industry itself, that people are like, this is weird, but this is unique and specific to that instance? Absolutely. We, we, it's, we, we don't foresee a dramatic change in the approach to the built environment. Hopefully we'll see better collaboration particularly by the architect profession and the planners in advance, uh, where we have development cheek by jowl, which increasingly we, we do. But I don't see a, a, a massive, you know, that should happen anyway. I don't see a huge deviation from the current approach. Home ownership is now completely unaffordable for people on average local salaries in all London boroughs. This is according to startling new data published in the Evening Standard this week. The new research shows a couple buying together anywhere in London need an above average income for their area to be able to take out a mortgage on a typical property nearby. The data reveals that joint buys in the borough of Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea, Camden, Islington and Harrogate need the largest percentage pay increases to purchase a place. Uh, for example, in Camden, where average house prices sit at nearly £850,000 and joint gross incomes are just under £100,000, um, a couple would require a pay increase of more than £80,000 to meet the mortgage affordability threshold. That's a percentage pay increase of 85%, and uh, pay rises like that are certainly not being given out anywhere. It'd be a major breaking news story. Um, meanwhile, more data, this time from Nationwide, shows that people joining the property ladder in London typically spend two thirds of their take home income on their mortgage. That is an enormous chunk of money that could be spent on stuff that's actually productive for our economy. OK, so Charles, what's this all about? Um, have London house prices reached an unsustainably high level? And could this affordability crisis strike a major blow both to wealthy homeowners in the capital, but also its property industry? House prices have probably been unsustainably high for generations um, and it's become more acute probably in our lifetimes particularly as home ownership post you know uh, Thatcher became so ingrained in the British psyche you look at the continental model and uh, home ownership is not considered 
the, the only route to successful living and particularly in expensive and highly attractive city centres. I mean, London is a global city. It has been for many hundreds of years. Um, it's always attracted, you know, very wealthy people. It, the problem is everyone, well, I'd love to live uh, in cool zone one. Um, of course, everyone wants to live here. It's fantastic. Why wouldn't you? So that's what's driving house prices. So I, if the figures are a bit depressing because you look at your own financial situation and, uh, you know, uh, and I think I'm lucky I do own a home, but it's, I could never afford zone one. And, but I, I think we, we have to be reasonable in our expectations of what a city centre can deliver. And I think there's a limit to how much housing, you know, for everyone, central London in particular, is able to produce. Because all these boroughs are, you know, in this top five, uh, very central. However, the study does say that every single London borough. So, you know, obviously, I gave the example of Camden. But, you know, this is the same in Sutton, the same in Redbridge, the same in Walthamstow. Um, And if we think back in the 1990s, just after the property crash People on very average incomes were able to buy homes in any part of London, right? And you, you mentioned generation, generational. There's a strong generational feel of like the haves and the have-nots, you know, and there are people living in zone two places, like big empty house with just one person living in it on the sheer fortune that they managed to buy it at a certain point. Um, but this is a major city. It's, this is uh, one of the world's greatest economies. It's one of the world's greatest cultural destinations. Yeah, surely the state it is in now is simply unsustainable. Let's look at some of the positives about central London first. I think there's far more social housing than people realise. We did a piece of research with Centre for London a few years back on social housing, affordable housing across the capital. And inner London boroughs have double the amount of social housing than outer London boroughs. And you have areas of you know, great wealth and very working class areas, cheek by jowl. Very few cities in the world have that. Uh, and I think that's, you know, something we've got to take credit for. And that is is protective and something we can be proud of. The problem here is around the right to ownership. Land prices are very high. That's a symptom of a successful city. Land space is scarce. <laughs> it's got a limited amount of space. So, you know, there's things we, we need to do to drive supply, which will help lower prices. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to transform for central London. It's not going to give everyone the right to own a home with their medium salary in central London. But there's a wider issue here about the delivery of affordable homes across all cities. It's an interesting point. I mean, certainly, as we covered on the show before, there's been about 3,000 fewer social homes available in London over the last decade as a result of regeneration projects. Um, We also know that London's population in total has increased quite a lot. The the population of London is is one of the biggest it's ever been. Um, Now, what's interesting is that typically, if we think about the way the property industry operates, we know there's a there's a commercial imperative to sell something for the highest possible price. You know, that makes perfect sense. Is it fair when people read reports like this in the Evening Standard for people to blame London's broken housing market on property developers? Um, or is it employers' fault for not paying us loads of cash uh, that we've got this, you know, we would be able to afford these really expensive homes? This is the problem with this debate, Merlin. Uh, just by the focus of that question, who, whose fault is it? Is it developers or, or employers? So business in general. Um, it's a huge failure in public policy. 
We expect the government to provide you know, those basic needs for people who need them. And affordable housing stopped being built by successive governments over 40 years now. You look at those, you know, it, it, there's fortunately been a slight uptick in recent years of local authorities creating their own building companies, partnerships, delivering their own homes, increasing in, in um, housing associations. But it's a, fa a huge failure of public policy. And the problem is, is that successive governments have passed on the responsibility for providing homes for people to those who can't quite uh, afford it or need extra help to the private sector. And it, it, it's wrong. So just like delving into the impact of this on Londoners and people who live and work in London, um, you know, for example, LPA, uh, you operate in Westminster, where the average house price is £935,000. Um, and the average joint gross income is just £114,000. Uh, so that means a percentage pay increase for a couple. So it's again, assuming two people are together long enough and trusting each other enough to buy a house together. Um, that they would need a 75% increase to meet the mortgage affordability threshold here in Westminster. Um, as someone here who works here, with colleagues who work here, um, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for your team? Um, are you going to be giving out 75% pay increases this year? Uh, absolutely not. Um, and, uh, there's a polarisation of housing in, in particularly Westminster, actually. Let's focus on that because it's a really interesting case study. Only... 1.5% of Westminster's housing stock is what's considered intermediate. So that's something which is available to those you know, who, who are working, uh, whether they're key workers or sort of, you know, professional workers. Um, the rest of housing stock is primarily for social housing. Um, there's around 35-40% social housing, and the remainder is very wealthy housing stock. So there's a polarisation of the very rich and largely the very poor in social housing, which I think rips out the hearts of these communities because you need, you need a mixture of all tenures. You need a mixture of working families. You, you need a mixture of young professionals because if you're young and you lay roots and then maybe start a family, where do you move to? You, there have to be choices to move uh, up the ladder to a larger property is, you know, is maybe you have children or your family expands. So that is a particular issue so you know the, the, there's a supply issue here with with housing this is why demand is so high you look at you know some of the solutions in the past there's been a fantastic documentary on recently the architecture the railways built and it was looking at the, the creation of metro land in the 30s actually you know we have great transport links and i'm not saying you know people shouldn't be able to live in central london <laughs> it is a mix we all because everyone wants to live in central london but with all right transport links and it was pleasing to see today's announcement of TfL uh, entering a partnership to deliver 20,000 new affordable homes across central London on its own land. Should have been probably done decades ago. But it, 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 these things are finally happening. And that is the right approach. And, you know, look at you, know, you taking advantage of our transport system and Crossrail to really deliver greatest waves of housing immediately outside those most expensive call zones. Mm. You know, not neglecting those call zones, but you yeah. can deliver much more at scale and affordable for slightly further out. People, I think, find it reasonable to commute relatively short distances. Yeah, I like that, that TFL announcement. Notably a joint venture with Network Rail, 
Um, interesting that Network Wear Rail, in proposing to redevelop Liverpool Street Station, hasn't put any homes on top of it. It's a hotel and some offices. Uh, it'd be pretty cool if that was uh, some affordable housing, which is probably what everyone needs uh, in that neighbourhood. Well, uh, this is where I have to disagree, um, because for you know for core cars, I think commercial space needs to be protected because residential space will always attract greater levels of income because if someone has to pay for this so the, the the by nature of the cost of that land and cost of that development the only residential or the primary sort of residential you'd ever get in that type of development is super prime there's a space for super prime you know we, we want international uh, investors and wealthy to, to be here but you know super prime on its own devastates communities because yeah. uh, because to be honest it's a fair point people go oh, we need housing oh there's a big development going on the train station let's have a, lo- a load of homes well, why build a load of homes on the top of that terminus, which has been, you know, which can be developed to bring people very fast from other areas into the centre of London? And, you know, commercial, London is successful as a commercial place because of that agglomeration of business, of people, of talent. And if you start, you know, some mixed uses would be great. Academic uses are very important, you know, student housing and the like. But if you start pepper potting just, you know, randomly bits of residential within the core, what we call the central activity zone of city in the West End, you will you start, you know, hollowing out that commercial centre and those agglomeration benefits, which actually p- makes London such a productive... I mean, London is a hugely productive city. Um, and, and what the government is trying to do is make the rest of the country equally productive. Um, so I think we've just got to be careful of, you know, that wishful thinking around, you know, let's you know, we, everyone wants homes, everyone sees the importance of it. But you really have to uh, uh, apply a very rational, you know, sense to where those homes should be. Is with the unaffordability of housing in London boroughs, do people in the commercial offices industry find that occupiers are saying to them, "I'd love to be based in London, but I'm worried about my staff, whether my staff can afford to live and work in London, how much I'm going to have to pay people." Is it actually having an impact on commercial offices? the fact that people cannot afford to live in London anymore? We're not seeing that deter people from actually basing their global headquarters or, you know, uh, in, in central London. I think what's driving occupier demand and those big companies to, to come here is the dynamism and attractiveness of central London. It is, of course, a factor. Um, uh, but I think, you know, a, a lot of those businesses are probably high-paying businesses. They want to attract talent who may not face the, 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 some of the, the, the same issues of you know, affordability um, uh, that, let's say, the hospitality and retail industries uh, face. And, you know, so, but actually, where are concerns are really around those key workers in those lower-paid sectors, retail, hospitality, leisure, culture, your security guards, your cleaners, you know, all those sort of fundamental key staff which are integral to the function of a city. Um, and I think, I mean, the biggest issues are probably with with that uh, proportion of the working population. The number of people forced to sleep rough for the first time on London streets rose by a third before Christmas. This was reported by The Big Issue. Data funded by the Greater London Authority found that outreach teams recorded a total of 3,570 people on the streets between October and December last year. Nearly half of them were sleeping rough for the first time. This represents an increase of 29% 
of first-time rough sleepers on the same period in 2021. London Mayor Sadi Khan said the stark increase provides, quote, evidence of the devastating fallout from the cost of living crisis. Matt Downey, chief executive of Crisis, said, quote, it is simply disgraceful that the numbers of people forced to sleep on the Capitol Street is very, very nearly back to the record levels we were seeing before the pandemic. He went on to say, it cannot be understated how grueling, brutal and dangerous life on the streets is. We hear regularly from people who have been attacked, abused and cut off from society. Absolutely no one should be forced to live this way. And yet the numbers new to rough sleeping are surging. So, Charles, what's this all about? Recent decades have seen a surge in wealth in a city like London. Um, property sector is doing really, really well. Um, I, having lived in London most of my life, London looks nicer than it's ever done before. You've got more cafes, better public transport, more beautiful buildings, um, you know, more kind of vivacity from and recognition of our success from all over the world. Um, and yet at the same time, we're seeing more and more people living in tents in more and more places you'd never expect it to happen. Um, how come nothing's been done to solve this crisis despite this boom in wealth? Yeah, it's really depressing, isn't it? Because we we got through the pandemic when the community really pulled together and, you know, rough sleeping was eradicated. One really hoped that we wouldn't return to uh, those sort of bad old days of, of rough sleeping. I think London is particularly, uh, you know, at acute risk of more rough sleeping because it's a magnet. People find themselves uh, in difficult situations then um, central London is a magnet uh, for them but it goes back to our earlier conversation Merlin ultimately um, about that lack of affordable housing so I don't think is a particularly issue that is endemic of what London is doing wrong I think it's a, a national issue. And just, just zooming in on the, the sort of UK built environment professionals response yeah there's a lot of people working in architecture and property based in London but it's, it's like an export industry like we, you know, we're selling design services master planning services development asset management services all over the world with that in mind you know is it fair for people here in London seeing this po po homelessness to expect more from the property industry community and then what has the industry done uh, to respond to this crisis uh, recently and, and throughout the past? What's, what are its main initiatives? Well, to be fair, the, the industry has to operate with, within the envelope of the planning environment. There's you know, a, a lot of faults in that uh, in terms of how it's structured. It's a, a supply issue and, you know, central London uh, you know, is, ends up a, a draw. You know, you know, there is a cost of living dimension to this where people, you know, there's also the issue around no-fault evictions, um, which you know, Boris Johnson, I think, was actually going to remove, and that was supported by the property industry. That still hasn't happened, and it's legislation which has been put on the back burner for now, which I, I think, particularly in the current circumstances, is a real lost opportunity. Um, there's, there's other areas of national... I, I don't mean to pass the book, Merlin, because it, it, it's, it's a fair challenge, but you know, there's other areas of legislation which really aren't fit for purpose you know for instance the vagrancy act dates back to 1824 it criminalizes you know rough sleeping so our local mp nikki aiken is campaigning to repeal the vagrancy act and actually ensure that there's more you know a more assertive outreach support rather than criminality at the heart um, of our approach to you know tackling rough sleeping the Guardian recently reported that homelessness charity Noble Tree has withheld several months' rent, totaling more than a million pounds, from the landlord Home Reet because of the substandard homes provided by Home Reet, which they say were riddled with black mould and leaking ceilings. Now, Home Reet was established in 2020 as the first London listed property fund 
set out to tackle homelessness. However, several of its largest tenants, which are homelessness charities, are refusing to pay the landlord until it improves the conditions at the properties this REIT was providing. Um, so do failures like this reflect badly on the property industry as a whole? Because um, it seems like you know, this thing was set up to tackle homelessness. Two years on, we're reading about it in the pages of The Guardian as a failure. You're right. It's on paper a great initiative, very laudable, um, and a way to actually help galvanise capital into tackling a, a very public issue. Um, unfortunately, something's gone wrong with the execution there. I, I don't know enough about the background. They're not they're not members of ours, but yeah, it, it is unfortunate. Um, really, though, this is a you know public policy disaster really or emergency to pr provide um homes for you know an accommodation bit for rough sleeping for you know, our social security net i think the best way to tackle these issues is it has to be through public private partnership uh, because i don't think private sector or capital alone um can really has you know really has all the tools because it, it's there it has to generate a profit um so that's where you need yeah, I think public income to really come to the fore of issues like this. The City of London is set to revamp the traffic system at the heart of Bank Junction, the Evening Standard reported this week. The next phase of the City Corporation's ongoing All Change at Bank project will permanently close Queen Victoria Street to vehicles from the 13th of February, making one of the capital's busiest junctions partly pedestrianised. Meanwhile, a temporary diversion route and one-way system will be introduced to guide traffic around the congested junction. City of London Corporation Planning and Transportation Committee Chair Shravan Joshi said, quote, The overall work programme at Bank Junction will make it a safer, more pleasant environment to travel through. Um, so, Charles, pedestrianising part of this junction um, will undoubtedly make the area safer for pedestrians and also for cyclists. Um, but it's been like, six years since the corporation first took moves to limit car use through this particular area. Um, why has it taken so long to implement a, a permanent pedestrianisation? Um, and you look, you know, the city is right there competing against Canary Wharf, which is pretty pedestrianised. Uh, I can walk around anywhere without having to dodge out of the way of a massive HGV or black cab uh, coming for my life. I think even the City Corporation accepts it's taken longer than planned. The pandemic didn't help, um, but there were all sorts of naysayers who said, if you restrict traffic through this area, um, it will cause gridlock in surrounding streets damage the economy it will you know bring london to a standstill um thankfully they've been proven wrong what we have seen is well a 33 percent increase in pedestrian uh, movements a huge increase in cycling improvements in air quality since 2016 2017 um and i think we you know i think we've won the argument you know it's people expecting their chauffeur-driven car to take them direct to their office or club belongs in the history books. So that's not the city of the future. That's not the city of now. I think opening up iconic public spaces like this is its future. Yeah, and you certainly think of um, the amount of space taken up by a cyclist compared to the amount of space taken up by um, a, a vehicle. I mean, and that's a, there's a real intensity of uses in the city and you've seen that with the emergence of eastern cluster things like the you know 22 bishops gate the tallest building in the city and you have all these iconic buildings and these are villages in the sky pretty much tens of tens of thousands of workers descending at set times 
into these. I mean, it has become a bit more fluid since the pandemic, so you don't have that initial rush uh, as you used to. But actually freeing up the streets um, of, you know, traffic is critical. I mean, there's always going to be a need for, for some traffic. All these people, you know, and businesses need servicing, you need vans, you need people travelling through. Um, so there are, there are genuine elements of the traffic, but that can be, you know, carefully planned and, you know, restricted or timed uh, in order to create as much space as possible. And we'd like to see the city go further, much, much further in, in other areas. There's huge scope here. We're now on to the culture section. Uh, so uh, coming up in uh, on the cultural calendar, uh, first up, we've got Save Britain's Heritage. They're hosting their annual lecture with Simon Sturgis at the Royal Academy on Tuesday, the 7th of March. Simon Sturgis is Save's carbon expert and is a witness at the Marks and Spencer Public Inquiry. Uh, it's a story we've covered a lot to do with the redevelopment of a building on Oxford Street. Um, and they'll be delivering a talk entitled Architecture and Climate Crisis, How the Past Can Save the Future. Simon will use the high-profile event to argue that architectural thought has been effectively dormant for the last 90 years, what bold claim, <laughs> and now needs a thought revolution to help solve the climate crisis. Tickets are available via the SAVES website. Finally, now is your last chance to see Evanescent, a public installation of giant iridescent baubles, uh, or bubbles, sorry, outside the Leadenhall building in the city. Um, this is uh, the Leadenhall building, sometimes known as the Cheese Grater, uh, which has a public space underneath it uh, on Leadenhall Street. Uh, the work from Atelier Sisu is on display outside the west entrance of the building until the end of next week. So we've got to get on down there. Um, Charles, there have been many public art installations in the City of London over the past few years. What's been your favourite? Well, I mean, Sculpture in the City is you know, a really popular annual event. Um, last year, I think, the, the Earthing in um, uh, Oldgate Square uh, by Jocelyn McGregor. Yeah. It's just this incongruous bunch of... I don't know, the artists will kill me now for saying this, but it's this incongruous collection of, of, of stones with large sort of giant stone snails atop and it's just it it just pops out from the pavement it's the incongruity of it all it's wonderful um and it's that element of surprise so i, I it's hard to choose a favorite i think the the granary by jesse pollock which i think was in cunard place last year um you know this sort of blood orange sort of shimmering grain store uh you know on stilts and it's totally incongruous in in its surrounding and it's beautiful and mesmerizing and i think you know the, the beauty of things like, you know, sculpture in a city or art, public art, is that you don't have to be a, you know, a, a kind of first class degree or masters in art to appreciate it. It's just the beauty of the aesthetics around us. There's art everywhere. I mean, Bloomberg Building by Norman Foster and Partners is, is a wonderful piece of art. Let's just all look around and enjoy what's around us and appreciate what's there. Charles, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on this week's London. Thank you very much. Where should listeners go to stay up to speed? Is there like a website or is there social media handles? If you look on LinkedIn, we have a, a regular posts on our research and activity um, and our, on our website. Just Google London Property Alliance and you'll see our material. Thanks, Charles. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown, 
and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism. Please become an Open City Friends today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel, and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.